Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 206, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. What sparks student motivation? Some researchers think they figured it out. And how did the pandemic improve teacher and parent communication? Stay with us. This is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, the former Stanford University sailing coach, who was the first person sentenced in the Varsity Blues college admissions scandal, well, he's now speaking out about what happened on this show. This comes on the heels of the release of his new book, Rigged Justice. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by friend, director of curriculum and instruction and co-host of Class Dismissed, Christina Pollard. Christina, how's your week going? It's off to a great start. Love to hear it. Yeah, um, things uh, have been going pretty smooth here. Our kids are in, you know, we're in that year-round school. Our kids are in the fall break right now, so it's our first mm-hmm. time to kind of experience that. I know you're probably like, uh, because you work in a district that doesn't have fall break, or at least that lines up with your son's school, huh? Yeah, that's true, but we're switching to that um, format next year. So oh, are you? Actually, an opportunity to, you know, look at how it works, what modifications they have to make, um, if they have any problems or not, and what they do with their intermission time. Do you think other districts in the state are going to fall in line as well and kind of go into that model? I, I actually, I do, because last year, a lot of the superintendents were talking about it, and only a few were able to get their ducks in a row to switch to it immediately. Um, the rest of the districts, I think, were just thinking about the logistics, what would it take, how would it impact um, teachers and funding and salaries and just different things like that. And so the plan is to take the necessary steps this year to be able to uh, vote on it and put it in place for next year. And I suspect a lot of districts are going to move to that because when you think about learning loss, which is a new coined term because of the pandemic, um, you can use these two weeks to provide interventions, tutoring, and enrichment to students. Interesting study out of the uh, Heckinger Report. uh, It's HeckingerReport.org. It was um, a report that looked at a study where these are one of those things where researchers use other studies and combine them all together and then look at the overall data, which I enjoy. It was a team of Canadian and Australian researchers. They decided to take a scientific approach and comb through classroom studies across the world, which um, kind of spark student motivation. So what they're trying to do is figure out what actually sparks student motivation. They looked at 144 different studies of about 80,000 students ranging from elementary school Uh, through the uh, university level. So here's what they found. They had two conclusions that jumped out. First was pretty basic. They said, teachers are far more influential than parents when it comes to motivating students to learn. They aren't saying that parents aren't. They say parents are important, but teachers actually can be more influential in motivating the students. And then they narrowed it down, like what motivates students to three things. And they say they're three psychological needs. And we're going to go through these one by one. The first one is competency. And I'm going to kind of kick this one off a little bit because it was kind of the most confusing. They say competency rose to the top of the list 
but it doesn't mean that like students who already know something, they mean like students who believe or have a strong sense uh, that they know something, that they feel like they're capable of getting better grades. That's a big motivator. Uh, would you agree with that thought? I would say yes. I, I agree with that. Um, I'm glad we're going to talk about different factors, but I do think that that's a, that's a major one. Okay. And then you've got belonging. Um, and so I guess that kind of ties back into that empathy building, that social emotional learning. So what can a an educator do to make children feel like they belong in their classroom and in their school? School culture and climate is a big deal. It's one of the, my favorite things to talk about and to research. And it really has to start at the bus stop and even more so at the car line. When a child and a, and a parent, for that matter, arrive at your school, they ought to get a sense of, um, you know, cleanliness, positivity. It should smell great. And of course, we should always have adults greeting children. And one of the things I had in place at my um, school some years ago is I want every child to have five greetings before they even make it to their homeroom teacher. So that's, you know, everybody placed strategically on hall duty, greeting children, complimenting their bows, their uniforms, their shoes, whatever the case may be. And by the time they get to the classroom, they really ought to have a pep in their step. If they arrive with, you know, some residue from a rough night, they didn't have a lot of sleep in high poverty schools, it could be that they're really hungry and they haven't been well taken care of. That makes a big difference. And then when they make it to their homeroom teacher, um, it's such a travesty when you see teachers at their boards writing, trying to, you know, quickly prepare for the lesson. Um, it takes away from very special moments. Teachers should be prepared in advance so they can stand at their doors and high five, greet students, build relationships. You know, if they've been absent, how are you feeling? Are you better? I can't say this enough. Relationships, relationships, relationships. They, I'm telling you, instruction and trying to improve student achievement does not matter if a child does not feel a sense of connection and some type of positive relationship, of course, with the teachers, but then also in a classroom. And that is all cultivated by the adult leading that room. I absolutely love that you have them, you know, need to be contacted five times. Like that's a really good tool. Um, And it's funny you say that because my neighbor, he has a gym and he doesn't always teach his classes, but it's like, you know, these large classes of people, one of the things he does with all his instructors is he's like, you're required to say each person's name in the class in that hour five times, like just so they feel like they're at home, you know, and being checked Mm -hmm. on and and being cared for. And and it's funny that that translates really in a school setting as well. I like that you shared that. One of the things that I always did as a teacher, of course, this is a long time ago, but I prided myself in learning every single student's name by the end of the week. Now, it took me a week because I had over, you know, 100 students in the secondary classroom, but it would always amaze them when I would call them by their names. It means so much to them. So if you're an elementary teacher, you know, you might not switch classes, but even if you did, you wouldn't have more than three. So no more than, you know, 75 to 80 students. It makes their day when you know their name. And there's little things you can do to help you remember their names. You can have them wear name tags. You can put names on their seats. You can walk around with your seating chart. So while you're talking, you can call students by their names until you get them memorized. Just some simple strategies, but it really is important. It's also important to learn the new teachers' names in the building. They also are trying to get acclimated and trying to make connections, and it'll make them feel special too and welcome in your school building when you learn their names. Uh, Yeah, in fact, we may actually uh, do a little 
bit on um, SEL for the educators uh, in next week's episode. And, and I think that could probably line up with that. And do too, when you're talking about saying names, I'm thinking of the experts that we've interviewed on this show, um, you know, about empathy. We've expert um, experts yeah. on uh, being distracted and using a name, I think has come up in from both of those experts and in, in the strength and power uh, that it has. Uh, next up on the list is autonomy, um, which they say, you know, makes a big difference in the workplace, but it also does in the classroom as well. And I think a lot of this lines up with, with that trend we've heard of um, students and student choice. Uh, what are your thoughts there? And yeah, and that's been around actually, you know, a little more than two years or so. It's a big deal, but one thing that is a concern for me is making sure that teachers really understand what that means. It doesn't mean children get to decide what standards they're going to learn or not learn or what steps they'll take um, to earn their high school diploma. It's giving opportunities to learn in different ways in your classroom. For example, if I was an elementary teacher and you know that we always teach in centers, it's a great way to differentiate your instruction and meet all the needs in the room. But having a center where students can choose the activity to do and still, um, you know, master the skill that, that you're teaching that week. I think that gets a lot more buy-in. It increases engagement levels. It makes students feel like they own it. Same thing in a secondary classroom. Suppose you're going to do a presentation, some type of research. We'll give them multiple topics, ideas um, to, to think about and to mull over and then come down to a final decision on what they want to do their project or their research on. And I just think when they select, um, they, they are really committed uh, to the protocols or the rubric that you're following for the project or the learning tasks that they are participating in. So again, these researchers identified competency, belonging, autonomy. Do you feel like they missed a big one there? Do you like their list? No, I like their list. I mean, we could go on for for days, right. really, um, listing different things and talking about why we think they're important. No, I think that they they did a really good job. Okay. Uh, next up, I've got a story out of Ed Week, and this is something that I think anybody could probably chime in on who's an educator, um, whether or not they feel like this is a silver lining from the pandemic. Um, it's one that I feel like we hadn't talked about too much, and, and that is how the pandemic forced every parent to communicate with their teachers. And I don't just mean <laughs> on the, the discipline level, like, hey, my child's bad. It's just like on a day-to-day -day basis, like, what are we doing? How are we doing this assignment? What do I... And so you kind of break down those barriers of communication and you find the best ways to communicate. Like, our, you know, our sponsor school status, they, they are, that is one of their key principles is to be able to text and communicate teacher to parent one-to-one. -one. Um, I know I've actually used that tool with my child and my teacher to try to figure things out. And I wouldn't call myself a helicopter dad and I wouldn't call my wife a helicopter mom, but now I almost feel like I have that relationship that maybe those helicopter parents had. But I think that's a good thing. I think that it was long overdue, to be honest. Um, something that's very different from when we were younger is, you know, I mean, I'm just being realistic, is that parents aren't as involved or connected to the schools the way they were when we were younger. And I think the pandemic kind of pushed us back together and strengthened the school-home relationship. I'm really proud of it because you wanted to have your parent meetings, but you couldn't have anybody in the building. So we had to learn how to have our literacy nights and our parent nights via Zoom and make them engaging with parents. And if you reach them and they don't think you're boring and it's relevant to them, they were more likely to you know, participate the next time. And then, of course, if, if their children were home on virtual learning or hybrid learning, they had an 
opportunity to hear teachers trying to teach virtually and trying to communicate with a, you know, a number of students. And even for those parents who were actually trying to help their elementary children um, learn how to read and reinforce skills being taught, they had to rely on support from the teachers. They had to ask those questions. How do I do this? You know, what tool am I using? Why isn't it displaying on my screen? I think parents had an increase of tech support um, requested also. Do With you, the number of devices going out, right. they really had to have some help um, because it's not just basic internet use anymore. You're talking about um, school district apps and and layered platforms for students to learn from. Do you think that um, parent communication is up amongst what, for lack of a better term, I'd call like the vulnerable groups, maybe those parents who would be harder to reach? I do think so um, because they're trying to understand and, you know, it, it might be their first time really hearing and seeing what a classroom might sound like. And if they haven't been involved, they might not understand it or they might think their child is being ignored and not realizing what it takes to manage 25, 26, you know, say second graders in a classroom. And then you turn around and you put that on a virtual platform. It's extremely difficult to keep them engaged, to keep their attention because you're not there to control what they're looking at. You know, they might have a sibling walking by. Cartoons might be on in a television in the next room. Um, a loud truck being outside the window. So they're much more, you know, they're easily distracted. Um, it's just, it's really difficult. And I think it allowed parents to support and understand teachers more. But I know that it also <laughs> had parents really hoping this pandemic would go away so we could get little ones back in the building. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'll be honest that especially for the really little ones, that's where it's tough mm-hmm. is. Um, as a parent, I feel like that first communication with my child's teacher at the, at the beginning of the year is so critical because it like opens up the avenue. It's like the teacher saying, hey, if, if you need to get in touch with me, this is the easy way to do it. And for, for me, it's it's through text message via school status, which just feels like a text message. Like, how important is that first one? Because I feel like if a, if a teacher never reaches out to me at all, I don't really even know how to ask a question other than writing a note in the folder and sending it home and waiting for that note to come back. It is critical. And one of the best practices that we try to teach teachers, especially for elementary, is to reach out and contact your parents, have all of them connected before school even starts. And if you're if you're an elementary teacher and you don't switch classes, you know, it's very possible for you to do that. If you do switch classes or you're secondary, you know, that's a lot of students to reach out to. But using school status. I mean, at just in a matter of seconds, you can send a broadcast message to introduce yourself, you know, maybe make a little funny and then, of course, have them save the number and say, hey, if you ever have any questions, this is how you can reach me. And by the way, it's, I've attached a, a picture copy of the syllabus or our, you know, first nine weeks vocabulary words and activities that we're going to do. It absolutely does make a difference. But at the same time parents have to want to be engaged and connected to their teachers in their schools. Yeah, that's true. But one thing, and I don't, I, this wasn't intended to like go on and on about school status, but that I really, like you said, broadcast message. So these teachers, they send out a message to like 30 or 40 parents. But the best part is when the parent replies with like, okay, it got it. It goes back to the teacher. It only yes. goes back to the teacher. So it's like, you, we all have been on those group me chats or, or um, even an email where someone hits reply all for everything. And you're like, I yes, don't need to hear all worst. that noise. <laughs> Yeah, and it almost turns you off because you're like, you're busy. Um, yep. So so that is a nice little uh, touch there that they have. Christina, are you ready for today's Bright Idea? I am. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment has a stunning perspective on college admissions. John Vandemore is a former Stanford University sailing coach, and he was the first person sentenced 
in the Varsity Blues college admission scandal. That's the college admission scandal that famous actresses Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin were linked to, as well as dozens of others. Vandemore is now speaking out about what happened, and this comes on the heels of the release of his new book titled Rigged Justice. The book is a candid and true story about how Vandemore was drawn unwittingly into a web of deceit, and it outlines a sophisticated scheme designed to take advantage of college coaches, which plays on the endless appetite for university fundraising. John, we appreciate your candor, and thank you for joining us on Class Dismissed. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, First, let's set the stage. This book opens up like a scene from a movie. It's February 2019, so this is all pre-pandemic. You and your family, your kids, you're starting out your day around like 7 in the morning. Uh, You live at at the time on campus at Stanford University, I'm guessing, because housing around the campus is just ridiculously expensive in that that part of the country. And, And an FBI agent along with an IRS agent knock on your door and you open it, right? And and you decide to cooperate with them and let them into your house. Is this correct? That is uh, that is true. Yeah. Open the door and there they were. And so, so they come in and they start kind of asking, I guess, about your recruiting practices. Um, what's going through your mind as this is happening? You know, I was really confused. Uh, to put it in perspective, at the time frame, there was also a huge FBI case on basketball um, where there was a lot of questions being tossed around about agents and sneaker companies and what, you know, and, and student athletes and so on. So I thought maybe it was connected to that, but I don't know why they would come to a sailing coach for it. So I really had no idea what was going on for the longest time in the interview. They didn't get to the heart of the matter for a while. Okay. So at what point did you start to realize the gravity of the situation that you, John Vandemore, is in? So the FBI agent was running the the interview in the beginning, at least, and she had a script that she was reading from, but it was kind of hidden from me. But eventually she put it down on the table and one of the words that I saw or a name that I saw was Rick Stinger. And so I was like, oh, wow, you know, maybe, uh, you know, he's in trouble or he did something wrong and I they want information from me. Um, so that's what I thought. Uh, going into it. All right. So if our audience has no idea who Rick Singer is, let's just kind of bring him up to speed. This is the guy who uh, essentially is kind of the the mastermind behind this whole Varsity Blues scandal. And I'm going to try to dumb this down and and correct me where I'm wrong. He basically took, I think, like $25 million from parents around the country. And he acted as a recruiter to multiple universities around the country. And he took that money. And then I guess you could say donated it to certain programs at different universities. And in exchange, whether knowingly or unknowingly, would help get students who maybe were not really qualified to get on, say, sports teams or in other avenues to get into the university. Do I have that right? Yeah. And, you know, in certainly a lot of cases, he gave the money directly to coaches and coaches directly pocketed for that. Um, as well as the whole SAT, ACT ring that he was running as well. Okay, so so you see his name and you probably start like reflecting like every interaction you've ever had with Rick Singer and you probably start asking yourself, did I ever do something wrong with this guy? I mean, at that moment that you're sitting there, you got an IRS agent and a FBI agent in your in your house and you see his name, do you start to go, oh man, did I, did I misstep? Did you start to think I made a mistake somewhere over the past year or two? Well, actually, first, I was probably naive enough to think this. I was like, well, what do I know? How can I help? Mm. Um, and, 
you know, I was trying to think back of what did I know about Rick that would be bad? And I couldn't think of anything, to be honest. At what point did you start to, was it until after they left and, and then maybe you like contacted an attorney? Did you start to say, like, maybe I did something that, that broke the law? Yeah. So it was really confusing. So towards the very end of the, the interview, the questions kind of shifted from the FBI agent to the IRS agent. And she was really forceful. Um, she was all over me and was like, no, you took money for these student athletes. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, that's, that's not, they were like, we described the, the deal that you had with, with singer. Um, and I kept saying, no, I, I don't understand what you're talking about. And she's like, well, you broke the law. And it was like, well, what law did I break? And she said, well, it's, it's federal bribery. And she kept and was saying it so emphatically, like, why didn't I know that? Like, duh. And she's like, because, you know, Stanford takes government money, you could be charged with bribery. And I was like, what are you talking? I have no idea. It just wasn't adding up for you. No, no. I mean, I I wouldn't have put that together at all. And then it kind of switched right away after that. And she was like, well, you seem like a good guy and you've got a really sweet family and everything else. And, And I was like, well, what does this mean? Am I in trouble? What do I need to do? Should I talk to Stanford? And they're like, no, 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 you cannot talk to Stanford. Um, at all. Uh, you would be obstruction of justice if you did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you should probably get a lawyer. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, you know, going forward. They wouldn't, they didn't say I was going to be charged with anything. And so I said, well, I don't have money for a lawyer. I've never had a lawyer in my life. And I said, well, we'll get you a court appointed lawyer um, from that. And that's kind of how the conversation ended or the interview ended. Um, and I was just left completely dumbfounded of what to do next. Essentially, the, I guess Rick Singer would donate to your program, which is pretty normal, right? Like, I mean, this is this is how you guys survive. This is how you buy equipment right. and, and and you know do what you need to do in your sport, sailing. Um, and then I guess in another time, maybe you'd have an interaction with Rick Singer. He would say, "Hey, I've got some students for you that that you may be interested in," and he would present them to you. Is that basically how it worked on your end? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yep, that's how I went. Okay, so so he would present these students, and I mean, did, at any point, did you feel like you had an obligation to to take the students that he was suggesting because he also, on another hand, was a, a donor? No, in fact, in the donation uh, I talk about in the book of the hundred and ten thousand um, dollars, he told me that hey, there's no strings aff- attached at all. I'm taking a risk that you might not support any of my uh, recruits that I bring to you but I believe in you and your program and I want to donate that money. So that kind of set my mental stage. Of that's what it was about him believing in me and in the program. And, okay. And we're going to fast forward. Now you, you end up getting sentenced, uh, refresh my memory of what your sentence was. So I was sentenced to a $10,000 fine, um, two years of, um, uh, supervised release and six, the first six months of that, I had, um, an ankle monitor. I was home, house arrest. And, and later on, I guess, as you, things kind of started to unfold and we're talking maybe even like a year or so later, you started to kind of reflect on things and see different pieces of evidence and so forth. And, and help me understand this. There was like a piece of evidence or something where basically like he had given you a, an email and he used the same picture under like two different students' names and you didn't catch it. And and in hindsight, you feel like that was him testing you to see if you would, you would play along. Yeah, that's right. I was in the um, Stanford, Stanford did an external review. Uh, You know, a third party law firm did a review of, of the program and the athletic department. So I volunteered to be interviewed 
And so during that interview, they showed me these emails. And so in one of them, it's a person I talk about in the book, I refer to him as Bodhi. Uh, the f- he sent me a resume at first. And so I looked at that resume. Then he sent me a second resume, you know, some months later. I didn't bother looking at it because I already knew what the resume was. But on that second resume, he switched the picture, the same picture that he used for Molly Zhao. And I w- that was the first time that I saw that picture on that resume was there. And that was, I think, October of 2019. So after all this, you know, it had been months since I was in this. And I was just completely shocked. I'm there with my lawyer. And it could see the the law firm that was interviewing was like, oh. You you had, you didn't see this before, did you? Because you just didn't open that attachment or whatever, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and it was like, yeah. I mean, I had no reason to open it. I already knew what the resume was. It wouldn't have changed. And so, but in hindsight, you feel like Singer was was basically saying, "All right, he's playing along. He knows that this isn't legit, and and I've got somebody who's going to play ball with me." Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. I think that was the test. You wrote this book. You titled it "Rig Justice." Where does that title come from? So. <laughs> It really comes from, obviously, it's a play on words from Saline as well, but it really comes from a justice system that I thought I understood going into this. You know, I was the type of guy that if someone pled guilty, then they're guilty, right? And hey, good on them. They pled guilty and they're owning up to it. And in this situation, I just see so many facets and I learned so much um, about uh, about the prosecution and the power of the prosecution that is just so set up for them. I mean, it's tough because in my case in particular, right? Like in order to defend myself, I have the university who's going to go against me. Um, or at least that's what the government told me. The government that is just taking the word of Rick Singer and is, you know, has evidence kind of tilted in their favor. And then I have no chance to have all these other conversations that I had with Rick. I, you know, I wasn't a criminal. I didn't, you know, record any of those. And all of those would have cleared me. Um, so I'm just stuck with that. On top of it, it's a they're, they're using a racketeering charge. And for what that means, and I think people don't understand this, is that the racketeering is a big escalation. It has minimum standards in terms of um, punishment that you can have, jail time. Mm-hmm. But it also has this requirement that everybody has to be um, tried together. So I would be in it with all the other coaches. And I'm the only one that didn't take any money. Um, and had something different. And after months, they would have to figure that I was something different. Okay. Yeah. So, so money is such a key thing here. And, and you mentioned this in the book. You talk about um, Jared Kushner as being like the poster child for getting into Harvard, where his, his parents, his billionaire father, pledged $2.5 million to a school. Um, and then he eventually ended up getting into Harvard despite you know being an average student by all accounts. Um, how is those type of events, and, and you could probably come up with dozens of others in similar events like that, any different than what you found yourself tied up in with the whole Varsity Blues scandal? Yeah, it is, you know, in some part of it, I don't know how it's different. Um, because the in my case, the school benefited 100% um, from all the donations. Um, what I've heard lawyers say is that, you know, Stanford's upset because they could have gotten more money. Um, which is kind of kind of absurd. And, you know, in the other cases with the other coaches that took the money, then that's a different story. Um, but really, it's the same thing of parents donating money and getting their kids into school because of that donation. Apparently, there is this quid pro quo that I think 
takes place at a lot of universities. I mean, is that frustrating for you to to see it done out in the open it, by naming buildings after people? But then when it's done this way, it's it's technically against the law. It is. It, it, I mean, that's frustrating. It's frustrating that that Stanford wouldn't even have the conversation with me um, being like, look, this guy didn't take any money at all. You gave it all to us. You know, I don't think there's an intent for him to be malicious in any of this. Maybe we should talk to him and see if this actually fits our practices or not. Um, but they never did. So is it fair to say now that you've you've lived through this, that the system, uh, the system of college admissions, getting students into the proper schools, the right fit, is it broken? Well, it's hard to say that it's that's all broken because my experience in my experience at Stanford is I thought the admissions officers were really good at finding the right students to accept. You know, here's the end of the deal. Everybody kind of thinks that these coaches and myself included had the full control to say who got into Stanford or not. That's not true at all. We were always putting up students for the admissions to consider, but admissions had the final say. Um, so that part of the academic part, I don't think is broken where money comes into it. it I think it's absolutely broken. And, and I hate to say that in a way because I don't have an answer um, because these schools need to survive off of donations. But at the same time, linking donations to acceptance to the universities is, you know, is fraught with problems. I mean, do you as a coach or any coaches out there, I mean, do you get applications um, for recruits that say, all right, um, Johnny Smith um, is a pretty average sailor, but uh, if he comes to our school, we might get a million dollar donation from the parents. Is that is that that black and white? No, it's not that black and white. Um, but it's so here's where it gets tricky. So at Stanford, what I can speak for is the me bringing a student athlete to be considered for recruit for recruitment. All that says in the handbooks that we were given was that that student needs to be able to support the team. So then the question is, well, what does that mean? You know, it's up to the coach to interpret that. So mm-hmm. is it okay for me to recruit someone that is mediocre, but could donate and make it the financial impact could be significant for all the players on the team? Right. Um, is that supporting the team? Well, that's one thing that I was considering putting in. Um, and I, I put it in actually into the ranking justification forms that were kind of thrown in my face as, as being a bad person. And I listed someone as a development recruit, which college fundraising is called development. Right. And I put that on um, to, to start down the path. I didn't actually support anybody. No one even applied. But to start down that path. And they said, oh, no, you know, he should have known better. They have to be this rock star recruit to go in. But that's not the that's not what they've said to us or trained these coaches to do at all. What do you want people to take away from your book if they read it? So, you know, for me, I wrote the book for, for two real reasons. One is for my kids. Cause I want them, they're five and three mm-hmm. and I want them to be able to Google me someday, which they will do way sooner than I want <laughs> and be able to see my story from my words. And so that was really important to me. But the second thing is the biggest takeaway I want people to take from this is that, you know, have faith in your community, have faith in the people that you work with, but also approach it with caution um, and be make sure that you're really surrounding yourself with people that you can trust 
and you know. I thought Stanford was going to come to my rescue and support me in this, but I was pretty naive of me, and they never did. Who's at fault in, in the big system? Is it the students, the parents, the university, everyone? Is, is it fixable? You know, I think it's fixable, but we have to stop being obsessed with working on getting the going for the same schools all the time and focusing on the U.S. News and World Report list um, and also taking kind of financial considerations out of the U.S. News and World Report list, I think would be really helpful and for students to realize that there's a lot of great universities for them to go to. That's that's a very valid point, And I appreciate you bringing that up. Again, the book is titled Rig Justice. We appreciate you being so candid and, and really kind of telling this whole story. Again, it, it reads like a movie. I could see this becoming a movie or like a TV um, series or a limited edition or something like it. It just really does play well. So, uh, you know, I got to hand it to you. I know you're a sailing coach, but you, you're actually a dang good writer as well. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. Well, thank you so much for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.